Welcome to The Prestige, all about film, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a film, we talk about it, we review it, and we discuss some of the ideas and themes it has and our reactions to those. And as always, we end with our recommendations of further reading, further watching, inspired by the film of the week. But before all that, we have a little catch up on what else we've been watching. So Sam, what else apart from our film of the week have you been purveying this week? Right, well, this week I've... Oh, I don't know, it was this week, the end of last week. Uh, we started watching the latest series of House of Cards. Um, my art and I have been fans of this series for some time, well, ever since it started. Um, and it, it, I thought after the American election last year that House of Cards didn't have anywhere to go, but it, the new, new season is, is very good. So we are currently about halfway through season five of House of Cards. I, I, I think I've seen the first three of those. I've seen up to the point where he becomes president. Right. Okay. And then I haven't seen any more after that. Right. It's 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 great. Carry on. People say good things about it. I just, I just honestly haven't got around to uh, watching it. It's in the epic to watch pile that I constantly uh, live with. How about you? It's interesting because I often up and down discuss the fact that with my with my young daughter, I don't get to watch much any day. So I've kind of embraced watching things she can watch, things I can watch with her. Now she's only nine months old, so she's not really watching. She's more watching what she's in the room with me. But anyone who knows me knows that I'm a big Disney fan. So I thought, you know what, Disney, large archive of movies, and I can dip in and out, as it were. So I have in the last week watched the 1944 film The Three Cabreros this is an early Disney film predominantly focused on South America um, and stories about South America and South American culture and South American sort of sensibilities and it has some has Donald Duck as sort of your in character but then also a couple of sort of local uh, bird characters um, it hasn't got overly large amounts of narrative but is one of those films that Disney made in the early years, uh, like Make Music Mine, like um, that kind of like Figure Arrows, which just show off their skills in animation, shall we say. Um, so yeah, it's it's I very much enjoyed it, but I'm a big Disney fan and I like this kind of animation. Um, it gets very weird towards the end. It gets much more kind of you know non-linear towards it, especially some of the animation styles. But for an interesting slice of early Disney, it's it's one of the best. So yeah. Three out of five. I'm just reading the Wikipedia entry. This sounds wow. It sounds amazing. It, it, I mean, genuinely, uh, it is very good. I mean, the, the early stuff from Disney can be a bit hit and miss, mm. and particularly they, they, they did do some sort of propaganda films during the wars, which were a little bit less uh, of their usual caliber. But I very much enjoy this, I must say. Go on then, Rob. What are we watching this week? So, following on from last week, where we watched Wayne's World, it's wholly unsurprising this week we are doing Wayne's World 2. Paramount Pictures presents... Extreme Closer! Wow! That was just like the first movie. Wayne. It's Heather Locklear. There is a God. Heather be thy name. And Garth. I feel weird! In their first movie since their last one. What's it called? It's called, uh, uh, it's called Wayne's World 2. Yes! Wow. People need to be entertained. They need the distraction. 
Coming out in 1993, the one year after Wayne's World, the film is also set one year after Wayne's World. Wayne and Garth have moved out of their respective parents' houses and are now living in an abandoned doll factory, still producing their show, still very much where we left them at the end of Wayne's World. Into which steps another record producer, played by Christopher Walken, and the feeling in um, Wayne himself to do something extraordinary. He decides to put on Waynestock, a music festival in Aurora, Illinois. That's probably as loose as the plot that we hang on is. Um, apart from that, it's filled with the same sort of pop culture references, homage, pastiches, and uh, similar humour thing. Now, Sam and I had a little bit of a... Uh, a text complaining about this film earlier in the week, so I, I kind of know where <laughs> Sam's going with this. Yeah. Um, but Sam, mm. what ha- having enjoyed meeting Wayne's World last week for the first time, how do you feel about the uh, the sequel a year later? Well, I did very much enjoy the first one. I said so last week, and I'll stand by that. And the fact that I enjoyed the first one so much means that I was even more disappointed by the sequel. Because I thought the sequel was terrible. And it just... There there were lots of... We talked a lot last week about being metafilmic and breaking the fourth wall and doing interesting things with narrative, with the process of composition, and it, 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 all that gone. It seemed, it seemed to me, and it's something that we, we talked about before, I'm not... So I'm, I'm, not second guessing your opinion here at all, but I'm just saying this is something that we have talked about when certain um, franchises think, okay, that was what was popular before, let's do more of that. And from my mm. perspective, I feel that that's what Wayne's World 2 did, and they took what they thought was popular with Wayne's World 1 and just made more of it, and sort of the, the homage to other, like you said, other bits of pop culture and the gross out humour and the the running gags I suppose and that for me is not what's funny about the first one what's funny what's good about the first one is the way that it is so inventive and so creative and I didn't feel any of that from Wayne's World 2 Rob Fair enough. No, I, I can't, I can't overly disagree with you, but I'm gonna come at it from a slightly different point of view, different point of view than you are. From my point of view, I think this film works almost identically to the first mm. film. As I, I agree with you, they went well. That was funny last time. Let's do it again, and I think they did it again very well. The problem you've got is you've seen it all before. It's not that it isn't funny. It's just that you know where the punch punchlines are. It's it's where you you know where all the jokes are going to be. If you'd never seen Wayne's World, I imagine Wayne's World Two is a brilliant film because it has the same jokes, the same moments. It has the same you know. Oh, I wonder if that will matter later, and then it does matter later. Mm. But it just felt tired. It felt like I'd seen all this before, and I'm just seeing the same thing again. I, I would agree with you with, would... with those. I mean, that that I wonder if this will will be relevant later, and then it is. That's the same thing, and that that you're right. That that would have been funny if anything before. 
But something I disagree with you on is something that happens very early on, and it's Wayne and Garth meeting musical heroes. And it happens mm. in Wayne's World 1 with Alice Cooper, and you have Alice Cooper not being who you think he's going to be, and then you have the we are not worthy. And for me, that was funny, not not because it was a, a send-up of these, these slacker types, or I'd heard the joke before... It was the the reason we are not worthy was funny was the the juxtaposition of that with this bizarrely cerebral character in our Alice Cooper, when that wasn't what you expect. You you expect hero worship. We are not worthy. Rock star. That's the way it's going to be. And then it wasn't. And it was that mm. subverting of expectations that I found really funny. In the second one, you have them doing the same thing to Aerosmith, and. They're just as you would expect them to be. And you have the We Are Not Worthy. And then Steam Tyler acknowledges them. And I think that was the point where I lost faith with the film. And it was very early on. Because Alice Cooper didn't acknowledge what they were doing. And that, for me, was funny. And as soon as Steam Tyler thinks that he's in on the joke, that's where it ceases to work as a joke. I, I see what you're saying, and I think that I, I'm happy to diagnose a little bit of what I think the problem here is. In this film, they know they're funny. They know they're cool. Yes. Um, and the, the the film had featured both films feature a kind of backstage scene. In the first one, it's kind of it, it's the candy store. They are backstage with their heroes. They are the nerd kids who have got these tickets to you know meet idols. In this film. There's this real sense of injustice that they've been cut out of the real backstage and are left to deal with is clearly who they're looking down on mm. out of towners. Yeah. And the, the places where the film's repeating itself, it felt smug, it felt superior to its material. Exactly, yeah. And one thing you can't say about Wayne's world is... That being said, and I want to add a lot of caveats to this, is I think the film is very good, very good, in certain places. But... I would say that those are the places when it was actually genuinely inventive compared to the first film. Now, I made a, a short list of these things as I, as I was writing down. And it's a, it is a short list, but I feel, I feel that these little moments really worked well, all these things. First of which is the inclusion of the character Del Preston. Del Preston is um, this kind of roadie from England who they bring in to help them run Wainstock. And I, I genuinely love... Mm. Del Preston. I think he's a brilliant character, and he's that kind of character that he, he, he you feel on paper he's not repetitive. And he, he just doesn't. He just gets weirder and weirder and stranger and stranger through the film. And I genuinely love that character. Secondly, there is a scene which I don't want to give away the. You know what? Spoilers alert for here. There's a scene in which they are spying on Cassandra. Um, she's on a date with another record producer. This, Rob Lowe last time, this time it's Falcon, which I think that subplot I was wholly bored with because it's going to work out clearly. Mm. Uh, we've been there before. But there's a scene in which they're spying on them and they, the, the, him, the Wayne and Garth and their two cameramen are in disguise and whilst this time I knew where the joke was going, the first time I watched it, I genuinely didn't. And they end up in a gay club. Mm. And there's this wonderful moment in which you suddenly twig they're all dressed as the village people. And it, it, I didn't, first time I didn't, didn't twig when I first saw it, then you get this sort of 
play that moment. And then, to top it off, this character, the recurring character of his naked Indian pops up and completes mm. the quintet. And that was a lovely, that, that, that's a lovely slow build moment that you don't see coming. I really like that. The other one is the fight between him and, and her, his father-in-law. Yes. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Japanese Hong Kong kung fu films. Um, and that kind of whole kung fu expectation. And that it was pitch perfect. It was, you know, before Tarantino went and did a serious version, this was a comedy version of everything about that. And I loved it. But that was where it was inventive. And these moments felt like islands in a sea of the first film again. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you it felt derivative it felt repetitive and it kind of missed the point but there were these brief moments where I thought you know what that that's what I want that kind of let's deal with new tropes let's deal with new ideas let's not have him question Cassandra and someone else again because we've been there um, and I like Kim Basin it, 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 Kim Basin just scenes with um, Garth are weird and badly acted and made no real sense mm. but I like Kim Basinger so I kind of uh, yeah. bought a little past there I think I get what you're saying about the the village people. The thing I'm sitting here feeling quite smug because I tweaked that they were the village people at the beginning of that scene, um, and I just thought this is a long build up to a village people punchline, and I can't be dealing with that. But what I didn't expect, and what did what I did like, was that. That topper at the end, where you're right, he turns to the naked Indian, and that, and he completes the set. And the the problem for me was that I spent so long in that scene thinking, oh, this is a village people joke, and it's not funny, and none of this is funny. That by the time it got to that bit, which was genuinely creative and good, I I just I just lost patience with it, and I just didn't care. And I think that that is what this film risks. That you're right. There are those moments of comic insights, creativity. It wouldn't go so far as genius, but sort of inspiration about it. And mm. they they are too often lost in amongst the rest, which is just derivative track. I I I would add a diagnosis. I think this is a genuine issue with Mike Myers' creations. That he he runs out of ideas. Yeah. If you look at um, the Austin Powers series, it clearly gets worse over the run of the Austin Powers films. Yeah. Um, and it's that same thing. You, you just run out of ideas. And it isn't a case of where a running gag can be... Because running gags can be hilarious. Like a genuine running gag can be funny. Um, but it just isn't that. It just feels like a lack of ideas. Yeah. I think also, it's, well, it's what you were saying at the beginning... About they don't know they're funny, and that sounds a strange thing to say because they're coming from SNL. They they know their comic mm. creations, but you're right. There is there is something about their comedy that they they know there is a possibility that they will fail. There's some there's something nicely heartwarmingly fragile about moments of it. Where they they're on a tightrope where you think well. Are they going to be successful? I don't mean are they going to win the girl or whatever the the aim of the comedy is, but aim of the narrative mm. is. But are they going to? I mean, are they going to fail in their comedy? Is this going to miss? Are they going to find it funny? And and you know by the time the sequel comes round that they they realise they've got through comedy hits on their hands and they don't care anymore. There's no there's no jeopardy about it. 
Yeah, I don't, it, it, I don't think it... It becomes this knowing wink to the audience, and not in a good way. You know, in the first one, we're in on the joke of... Um, the reference they're making was, this is the in on the joke of, it's a sequel, you know me, you know my jokes. You know, I know I'm funny, you know I'm funny, you know I know I'm funny. And it, it, it sort of broke down that kind of... It got... It was too up its own ass to use it to use an English expression. Quite, and I think you see that in the you have the different endings again as you did in the first film, mm. and this time those different endings felt forced. And also there was there was something else about about that ending that um, and you have the the sequence. This is an obvious pastiche of the graduate, and. This film just left me wanting to see the films that it reminded me of. So right at the beginning, when there's a there's a nod to Batman, um, mm. and then or or then in in Wayne's first monologue when he talks about John Hughes, or the end, as I said, when when it's a homage to The Graduate, you think I just want to be watching. I want to be watching a John Hughes film, or I want to be watching Dustin Hoffman, or I want to be watching Adam West's Batman. I, all all of these different references felt, they they just left me cold because they just left me I thinking think, I'd rather be watching that. And I, I I think the reason why you got that is is that they made no sense. Mm. You know, they, 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 the one we haven't talked about there in, in your homage is I mentioned earlier that the fight scene with with. Um, Kind of that, because it was clearly an homage, a pastiche of of sort of Hong Kong action films, but it made sense exactly, in the plot. Yes. And even if you look at the first one, the the different endings. You had the sad ending, fair enough. You had the um, Scooby-Doo ending, which made sense. You know, the, the villain was revealed. Like it made sense as to why you would have that obviously within a, a given sense, term of sense. But it made sense where you'd have a Scooby-Doo-esque ending. You had a bad guy and revealed. You know, they played a joke mm. on that. In this, you had a Thelma Louise ending. Well, that made no sense. They weren't on the run. No. You know, it, it wasn't that Wayne and Garth in the real world are on the run and this is a different way to end it. Even if it is a surreal fourth wall breaking version of that, it's just like, well, let's do it. We, we like Thelma Louise. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't have that same kind of, as you say, it didn't come in. And, and the graduates, like, I'm not quite sure why they had the graduate because... It's obviously the relationship in the graduate are very different to the relationships in this film. So there wasn't a link beyond they just liked it, and it isn't the case of like in the first one we had that lovely moment in which you meet uh, Rob Patrick as uh, Terminator, where it's a one-off throwaway gag. Um, this just felt like they want they, they thought well that, that'd be funny, wouldn't it? There's no reason beyond doing it, which is what we can. Yeah. Um, and it just felt too, as you say, too forced. Too the pastiche of this. That they're producing had no connection to the narrative behind it, and it kind of left it kind of flailing. Yeah. For purchase. And I suppose that's. I mean, that that's something we've been talking about a lot this week. The idea of pastiche. That pastiche is such a difficult thing to do because it can fail like this, and it it is it is difficult to pull off because there there is such an there's a great possibility that you won't pull it up. Now, I, I, and everyone knows I love these. I have a theory here. We've, we've got to let's let's make a jingle. We've got to make a sting for Rob's theory. 
Well, maybe this is born out in my practice that spoofs, which is kind of isn't a spoof, but it kind of trends that line a little bit, tend to fall into two categories, which are called good and bad. Uh, in the good, you put things like airplane. You put maybe Wayne's World 1. Um, the bad, you put things like the scary movie franchise and all that kind mm. of thing. And I think that the defining categories that make these things different is what they are pastiches of, or what they are spoofs of. You look at Airplane and you look at films like that. You look at the Naked Gun films. Um, very, very often in those films, they are spoofing a trope. Mm. So they are spoofing an idea, a thing that becomes, you look at Wayne's World 1, the reveal, the Scooby-Doo reveal. That, but that isn't, it wasn't as a Scooby-Doo moment. It's a trope within Scooby-Doo. Mm. Um, airplane has it, it's mocking some you know, be it jive talking or be it other scenes but you aren't mocking it generally a particular moment in another film no. whereas when you hit Wayne's World 2 they are they are pastiching moments in a film actual moments rather than a trope that we all understand you know we talked about last week about how the Laverne and Shirley opening scene in Wayne's World didn't land with us because we didn't know what they were about we didn't, we didn't get the reference and here in, in Wayne's World 2, so many, like, when I first saw Wayne's World 2, I hadn't seen The Graduate. Right. Because I just was, I was the wrong age. I hadn't so that whole scene made no sense to me. Um, now, it does. It makes more sense. But it's just like, I don't know why. Whereas if you look at things like Airplane, like, it, it's a, a visual gag on a trope. And this film had moments. There's a scene in which they, right earlier, that they crowdsource, uh, crowdsource, crowdsurf um, at Airplane. And as they're standing there, kind of getting themselves set up afterwards, over the over the crowd comes a pizza guy, a fridge, and that's a very that, that made me feel very much of airplane, and that that like that felt like a, a little joke on a trope rather than a joke about. Well, do you remember this from that film? Mm. Uh, and particularly with the, the scary movie films, the pastiches in those, they are very. Do you remember this or what happened if you know the the, 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 the Matrix got their back clicked out while they fell over? Like it, it, they are mo- they are mocking particular moments in a film, um, and. It, doesn't land in the same way that if you want to mock a a trope or or an idea or or even a, 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 a filmic meme that infects. Um, yeah, one of, one of the things that in one of the things that I find so memorable about Scream is that moment where someone says they they make it make a thing about not going upstairs and then going upstairs, and that's that's not mocking a movie. That's not taking you part of a particular no. moment. That's that's it, taking taking a swipe at a whole swathe of horror movies. That's a whole genre. That's not even a trope. That they they they're mocking something, as you said, something much bigger. And and that's that's how it lands. This universality, for want of a word, is how these jokes land. Mm. And this film felt too much like it relied on. Inside knowledge, and the first one had a little bit of that. You've got some jokes around the kind of the, the heavy metal scene, but this film didn't feel quite as as general, and thus the jokes felt a bit more kind of like, well, we know that Mike Myers likes Roderick. That's all we know. You know, it isn't a it isn't a trope been done to death that requires mocking or can be used. It's just going look, look, graduate. Mm. I think, and, and I think what you're saying is is that. One one of the things that makes a good pastiche, a good spoof, good, is that it will work as a creation, a filmic creation, or as a book, 
independently of the knowledge of the audience. So you don't have to have seen particular films to find that moment in Wayne's World 1 where he opens the door in the diner and there's a Bond montage going on. You don't have mm. to have seen a particular film to find that funny. There is something really clever and really funny about the fact that he is talking about that and turning the camera to mention that in within this film. The thing is, with Wayne's World 2, so much of the humour relies on the fact that you have to know what they're mocking. And even in the case of like the, the graduate passage, like I didn't feel that there was anything funny at all. Like, what what was funny about that? Any of that? It, it, it just it felt indulgent mm. in a way that the first one yeah. didn't. Yeah. So Sam, as you often say in this, save us, save us with some recommendations that that are worth watching. Well, <laughs> I have two films, and looking at them after you just said save us with some good films neither of them are particularly good films but they are both really fun and the first one is a link to one of the main characters here who was in the first one it's Christopher Walken who was in A View to a Kill and I am not a huge fan of Roger Moore Bond films in general particularly Bond films in the 80s and actually into the 90s with Pierce Brosnan um, I just I'm, I don't get on board with Bond of that period but there is something really comforting and fun and fun in a completely bonkers way about A View to a Kill I mean having Grace Jones in that dress at a race course is just hilarious um, so that's my first one and my second one is I mean, is it possible to get even worse than *Ready to Kill*? Um, there is a connection here with one of the actors who appears doing an appalling Scandinavian accent in in a scene that I did not find funny at all. It's Drew Barrymore. Hogan Gogan. Hogan Gogan from *Lydia*. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and she was in a quite I say recent film, but actually it was a good seven or eight years ago um, but she was it was it was later than her golden period in the late 90s and noughties and it's the film Whip It which I enjoyed in spite of myself and and there are, there are some I mean if you don't particularly like ice hockey then you struggle to think how any film about ice hockey would be good, and then you watch Mighty Ducks, and with it's brilliant. With it is the yeah. same thing about same thing with Roller Derby. You think how can they make a good film about that, and then it's actually really fun. So that's it's my recommendations for two fun films to watch this week. Fair enough, fair enough. I've equally had gone for fun films. It had nothing overly serious this week for mm. me, um, and I with you like you have taken. Two actors. I think having last week we covered some of the um, some of the uh, sort of thematic ones. I would just quit very small aside here. I would throw in a recommendation for for Airplane. I mentioned it a few times there in, in the episode. If you're looking for proper good funny pastiche, Airplane is, is your gold standard. Mm. So I've taken um, a the character of um, Cassandra, so Tia Carrera, um, who obviously made both films. But I thought yeah, you know, I mentioned it, and she is in a film that. 
treads the line with pastiche, um, but probably falls harder on the side of um, seriousness than comedy. And that is the 2004 film, for only a year later, True Lies. Uh, this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger um, vehicle in which he plays a secret agent who's also secretly a stay-at-home dad. Um, with Jamie Lee Curtis as great support, Tom Arnold um, comes in it, Bill Paxton's in it, um, and Tilly Guerrero plays a, the, one of the bad guys in it. Um, it is hilarious um, in certain moments, that kind of, the, you know, Schwarzenegger knows who he is, Paxton's brilliant in it, um, but it also it's a, it's a great sort of mid-90s action film. Um, so if you haven't uh, uh, seen that, it's worth it. It also reminds me, looking at the goddess here, it has got Charlton Heston in it um, as a character. Now, one moment, two moments earlier that worked, the Heston moment I thought oh, worked that, brilliantly. that was great, yes. That, like, that felt a really lovely fourth wall-breaking moment that was funny all along the way. So yeah, um, there are a couple of links here, and then Charlton Heston is as well. Um, so yeah, True Lies from 1994. The other one, as I mentioned earlier, I really liked the character Del Preston. I thought he was one of the best new business and he played an act called Ralph Brown um, and I wanted to this isn't really a movie it's not a movie at all um, it's a TV show from back in 2000 um, and that is the Lockstock TV show uh, now the the, uh, sort of the Lockstock Two Pink Barrels films were huge in the UK when they came out and there was a TV show in the in the, in the early noughties and he plays a character in it called uh, Miami Vice and it's it's often forgotten that show was, but it's very good if you like kind of hot box stock snatch kind of thing. There is a um, a new TV show coming out soon in in that same world, uh, starring Rupert Grint. But uh, this was the original, and it's uh, very much but I very much enjoyed it. So if you haven't seen Lock Stock TV series and you like uh, those kind of movies, worth checking out. Great. So Rob, what are we moving on to with our, our final? Well, Franchise. Our final franchise of, of season two. And now I think this one for me is is a, a big I'm not a buried leader, it's a big love of mine, but I'm not sure and you're probably if you've seen any of these. I have not. Um no. so and once again this is like we often talk about how, you know, Sam I am I'm I'm, I'm the, the movie buff, the one watches everything, and Sam's more and more of the uh, the literature thinky person. But the fact that Sam has managed missed out on these huge cultural icons <laughs> astounds me. <laughs> So we will be looking at the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So first off, looking at Fellowship of the Ring, then Two Towers, Return of the King. If you if you really care about these things, then uh, I feel duty-bound to mention that we're watching the original versions, so the shorter films. Well, yeah, we, we, we are, I'm having to, having to accept that I'm not going to get Sam to watch four-hour movies of Lord of the Rings. Uh, so we're watching the theatrical releases. Um, but if any of you want to talk to me about the, the extended versions, love to see them, see them loads of times. Um, so yes, next week, Lord of the Rings. Right. It's gonna be great. Till then, guys, you can find us on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. Just me at Life underscore Academic. Or just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you here next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.